Welcome to Fam Room Discussions, where I open up my fam room to talk about the week's lessons from Come Follow Me. I'm not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I'm just an average Latter-day Saint seeking to grow my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures. Discussing Come Follow Me with others helps me in my conversion. I hope you'll join in the gospel dialogue by sharing your insights. Without further ado, let's start this family room discussion. Sisters and brothers, family and friends, this is episode 25, following along with Not My Will, But Thine Be Done, Luke chapters 22 and John chapter 18. In the introduction it reads, there were only three moral witnesses to Jesus Christ suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they slept through much of it. In that garden, and later on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins, pains, and sufferings of every person who ever lived, although almost no one alive at that time knew what was happening. Eternity's most important events often pass without much worldly attention, but God the Father knew. He heard the pleading of his faithful son, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. While we were not there to witness this act of selflessness and submission, we are witness, uh, witnesses of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Every time we repent and receive forgiveness of our sins, every time we feel the Savior's strengthening power, we can testify of the reality of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, this lesson uh, that we read in Come Follow Me is the pinnacle event. This is the apex of our faith. Um, in section one, it says conversion is an ongoing process, which uh, feels pretty perfect given the fact that it's this very uh, lesson, which in a lot of ways needs to be the bedrock of our conversion. So it says, think about the experiences Peter had with the Savior, the miracles he witnessed, and the doctrine he learned. Why then would the Savior say to Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren? As you ponder this, it might help you consider what Elder David A. Bednar taught about the difference between having a testimony and being truly converted. And, and just a quick excerpt from that talk. It says, For many of us, conversion is an ongoing process and not a one-time event that results from a powerful or dramatic experience. Line upon line and precept upon precept, gradually and almost imperceptibly, our motives, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds become aligned with the will of God. Conversion unto the Lord requires both persistence and patience. And I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty perfect, even though that it was in the lesson. And as I was reading through that talk, that stood out for me. Continuing on, it says, as you read about Peter's experiences in Luke, think about your own conversion. Have you ever, ever felt so committed that, like Peter, you were ready to go with the Savior, both into prison and to death? Why do these feelings sometimes fade? There are daily opportunities to either deny or witness of the Savior. What will you do to be a daily witness of Him? What other lessons do you learn from Peter's experience? Um, and I have thoughts. I'll finish this way. It says, and as you continue reading the New Testament, watch for evidence of Peter's ongoing conversion. Also, no ways uh, he accepted the Lord's change or the Lord's charge to strengthen thy brethren. And so that question of why do we personally feel committed sometimes we feel super committed and then other times that fades and I, I think that's the um the ultimate struggle of conversion right sometimes some days you just you just feel it you feel like you have the holy ghost with you you feel um i would describe it as like a feeling of power almost just of a righteous power 
that comes and you just never want it to fade. You feel like it never will fade. You're like, I will always feel this way. And then sometimes weeks, days, even hours later, it did fade and you're like, oh, I just don't feel the same. I don't know necessarily all of the whys. Uh, obviously, our choices affect this a lot. If uh, we choose not to be as close to the Holy Ghost, that's going to affect our feeling. Um, as we don't act on invitations from the Holy Ghost, that also affects um, that, that feeling, that closeness, that fire within us. And uh, sometimes it's just little small things, right? Like a prompting to, to do this, say this, or go here. And then we, in our heads, kind of logic ourselves out of it. And it's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not right. And then we all of a sudden feel that loss. And that's, that should help us. That should be a moment in time where we can pinpoint and say, okay, nope, that was in fact an invitation and I need to act on it. Uh, a great rule of thumb, obviously, is just act on all good promptings, even if it, and it's scary or it could be awkward or, or anything. If it's a good prompting, if it leads to good things, then just act on it. Um, but other times I think it's, it's not just because of our choices, but sometimes I think it's truly because Satan comes just like, uh, the story with Moses, right? He, he talks to God and then God goes away for time and then Satan comes and, it's to help us understand the difference to for us to be able to see like, okay, yeah, this is not the person I want to follow. Uh, I want to follow Jesus. And, and I like the way I feel as I follow Jesus, but following Satan or whenever he's around, I do not enjoy that feeling. So I think that's part, another part of it. Another aspect is that Satan is constantly there to test us. And um, we should feel icky. We should feel gross and weak in the spirit when he's trying to test us to help us to be more committed, more um, firm in our desire to serve our Savior. So I, I think that's another aspect of it. And then I think that I think a third aspect is actually just straight stamina. It takes real energy, uh, even physical energy, to stay in that spiritual high zone with the Savior. Um you remember the story in Doctrine and Covenants, but I don't know if this was, I I believe it's in Doctrine. I mean, I know this obviously happened, uh, but I can't remember if it's just a church history thing or if it's actually in Doctrine and Covenants. But uh, as I say that, I'm like, no, it was definitely a church history thing. Anyway, where Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon have this, uh, this vision. And after this vision ends, Sidney Rigdon like passes out. And Joseph Smith says to the others who are there, He's not as, what is it? He's not as uh, used to it. That's it. He's not as used to it as I am about having those experiences. It took physical energy. Obviously, remember the first time that Joseph Smith had a vision. It sapped and, and drained all of his energy. And then the, even the second time, obviously, uh, he had to build up spiritual and physical strength to be able to endure those experiences in the same way that we also need to do this. And so we can't stay in that spiritual high forever. We haven't developed the muscle, uh, the spiritual muscles for it. And so that's another reason. Uh, anyway, 
going, I, I just want to go back to this, this thought on conversion, which is that as Elder Bednar says, for many of us, a conversion is an ongoing process and not a one-time event. And I, I would even say um, pretty much for all of us, maybe there's that rare exception, but for all of us, it's, it's daily choices, daily decisions. And that's what leads to conversion. And so every single day, you have an opportunity to commit yourself to the Savior. You have your opportunity to commit yourself to the gospel and what you know to be true and to act on that. And it's up to you to be able to take that commitment that you make and then go and act on it. And as you act on it, you start to build those spiritual muscles. You increase your faith. You grow in your conversion. And you'll have more and more opportunities to be able to prove that. Uh, when you fail, when you mess up, which you're going to, which we all are going to, it's part of the plan. But take that opportunity then to change, to correct, to repent, and keep going. Don't just ignore that failure. Ignore that um, that failure. Keep going. I say failure twice. Anyway, repent, change, and keep going. Um, and then in section two, it says, The Savior suffered for me in Gethsemane. And uh, there's a verse that uh, I felt this is kind of smaller, but it's it's a random thought I wanted to be able to discuss because I didn't know this. Um, and I don't I don't remember how long it's been since I kind of found this, but I thought I'd share anyway. In Luke chapter 22, verse 43, it says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Uh, so that's the verse. I went up and looked this. This is in, uh, it's called The Man Adam. It's by Joseph Fielding McConkie and Robert L. Millet. And here's, here's kind of a, a little excerpt from that book. It says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and he sweat as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Elder Bruce R. McConkie postulated that this angel was likely Adam. If this angel was Adam, and there seems to be no reason to doubt it, here was the Messiah in the Garden of Gethsemane in his greatest of all trials, shedding his blood to redeem mankind from the effects of Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden, and also from the results of each person's own sins. There appeared from heaven to strengthen him the very person of Adam himself, he who brought mortality and blood and death and sin into the world. The parallel issue is unmistakable. The plan of salvation to which both Adam and Jesus subscribed in the pre-mortal world, was being worked out in the world of Adam's posterity. Each had fulfilled his foreordained part, and now the two principles were together as Jesus triumphed over sin and mortality. The next day, Jesus would die upon the cross, and three days later, he would rise from the grave, totally triumphant, not only over the death of the body, but also over the death of the spirit, which is alienated from God. And so... I remember in high school and seminary being, you know, wondering, I was like, who's the angel, you know, who is, and then being able to kind of find at least Bruce R. McConkie's opinion, um, and then restated by Joseph Fielding McConkie and Robert L. Millett. Uh, the more I've thought about it, the more I'm like, it makes complete sense that it would have been Adam. Adam would, who st helped start the plan, uh, Jesus, who was making the sacrifice because of the, like, from because of it, Adam and Eve's fall, uh, which again is very much part of the plan of salvation, 
but then here's Christ suffering. And so it would make sense that Adam would be the one who, from the beginning, those two were together. Uh, Adam would be strengthening and, and helping Christ. And so do we know that for sure? No. Do I think that's right? Yes. And I just wanted to share that. Um, my final thought is this. But I said at the beginning, this these uh this this reading that we did here, and speaking about the Garden of Gethsemane, the the full act of the atonement is also in next week's reading, uh, with the cross. But it begins here. It begins in the garden. We know very little about it. Uh, for for most religions, this is is uh, n- nothing happened in the garden. It was all taken care of by the cross. The cross is the the central piece of Christ's life. But for Latter-day Saints and, and with the revealed doctrine, we know that the garden, uh, even though this wasn't the, the full entirety of the atonement, this was, uh, as I would compare it to, being the kind of the spiritual part, right? The cross was the physical uh, the physical body, the garden was the the spiritual body, and being able to suffer for our sins uh, so that he paid the price in, in order for us not to have to pay the price for our sins. Um, this is like the central, this, the, the atonement of Jesus Christ is the central piece of the gospel. It's the central teaching. Without it, we could not be able to receive or inherit eternal destiny. Um, everything we know, everything that we act on, the the atonement of Jesus Christ is central to it. And so it's funny that, that like this week's reading was two chapters. You would think that this would be volumes of the scripture, um, which, which it is, ultimately it is, but the actual act, I mean, we were able to read it in two chapters. Uh, from two different books, from Luke and John. And so I just want to emphasize that as we as we read, as we study uh, this, it's not about the, the words necessarily that were important here, uh, the, the amount of words rather, but the importance of this message, the importance of this um, event, and and what we learn from it, what it does for our testimony, what it does for our conversion, is pivotal, and and being able to highlight that I think is important. So I want to make an invitation to you. Uh, this section of reading, as I've said, is the crux of our testimonies. It should be it should be the very crux of our testimonies. It's central to the plan of salvation. It's central for our ability to live with our families for eternity. And the simple question we can ask ourselves is: Do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? that he suffered in Gethsemane and on the cross at Calgary for our sins. And then by so doing, that he took upon himself all the suffering of the consequences of our transgressions. Do we believe that? The answer for me is yes. Absolutely. 100% yes. Um, I know this to be true. And if you feel the same, even if you have doubts, even if you're not 100%, even if you've got you know, some questions, you can... Um, if you still believe that yes, 
all this is true, then you can, with confidence, say that you have a testimony. But next, there's a harder question that we have to ask ourselves. With this testimony that we have, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do about it? Jesus did not suffer for the sins of the world, for the sins of mankind, and, and for your sins, your personal sins. He didn't suffer for them just so that you could say you believe he did it, and that's it, and call it good. That's, that's the start. That's the beginning, but that's not the end game. That's not the end goal. Conversion comes when we are able to ask ourselves, what are we going to do because of the truth that we have? And then keep asking and keep growing and keep acting on the, th- on the answers that we receive. So my invitation for you this week and for me is to, is to ask, what are we going to do to be better this week because of our testimony? Thank you for joining my family room discussion. And until we meet again, have a blessed week.